Radio. Do you know what a Rube Goldberg machine is? You may not know the term, but you've probably seen one in action, at least on TV. A Rube Goldberg is an incredibly complicated machine that requires a ton of steps to complete one small task. Like knocking over some dominoes, pushes a cue ball into a hamster, which spins a wheel that powers a fan that blows over a hammer that knocks in a nail. Basically, one small action triggers a huge number of other things. Let's try one out right now on the podcast. With one word, I will trigger a Rube Goldberg machine in your mind. Ready? Immigration. It is almost impossible to say the word without conjuring up all sorts of related topics, all leading to other related issues. You might be thinking of refugees, or Donald Trump, or the Border Patrol, or drug cartels. The list goes on and on. And as a result, reporting on immigration requires you to engage with all of these things, and then some. Jay Root is a reporter with the Texas Tribune, and during the most recent presidential campaign, Jay decided to do something big on immigration, something that could get at many of the layers involved. The reporting put him and his colleagues in some tricky situations. So I've got my cell phone camera and Todd has a real camera and we go in there and we were nervous as hell, you know, but we got some really good stuff and we ended up having a confrontation with the smugglers. They were like, don't take photos of us. And and Ruperto said, they're just reporters, they're not police. The final massive project called Bordering on Insecurity touched on all sorts of interconnected issues. The reporters talked their way onto a crime scene in El Salvador, calculated how many people in Texas prisons were undocumented, watched migrants cross illegally into the U.S., and investigated what feeds the demand for immigrant labor. Irie's Kara Tabor talked with Jay and videographer Todd Wiseman to learn how the Tribune reported on this complicated but important issue. I'm Blake Nelson, and you're listening to the Irie Radio Podcast. It all started in the summer of 2015. Now President Donald Trump was on the campaign trail, running on his plans to curb immigration, both legal and illegal, with bans and border walls. At the height of the campaign, a woman named Kate Steinle was shot to death, seemingly at random, while walking on a San Francisco pier with her father. Her killer, a man who happened to be an undocumented Mexican immigrant, a man who had been deported, five times. And it caused this uproar uh, in the campaign, and Donald Trump made a huge deal out of this every time there was, you know, any type of terrible crime that was happened to be committed by an undocumented immigrant. That's Jay Root, a reporter for the Texas Tribune. He moved from daily reporting to investigations that same summer, amid the campaign ruckus and Steinle's death. Which I never really wanted to be a, quote, investigative reporter, because I feel like everybody should be an investigative reporter. But you know, I did jump at the opportunity to not have to get stuck in the dailies, in the daily grind. Regardless, he had to pitch a project. What better place to start than examining immigration from the inside out, especially in a place like Texas? That was the beginning of the Tribune's Bordering on Insecurity project, an 18-month look at immigration that went well beyond border crossings. The result was a four-part series that ran over the course of 2016. 
Jay and nearly a dozen other Tribune journalists decided to look at four key issues. Crime in America's so-called sanctuary cities, which have come under fire from politicians and others for allegedly harboring nefarious individuals. Part two looked at corruption, not just in Mexico, but also with those entrusted to protect the nation's boundaries, U.S. law enforcement and border patrol. Part three took Jay and readers to Central America to witness the dangers of everyday life that drive people to flee north. And the last part was, well, let's, let's, put the, let's look at ourselves in the mirror here. Who's taking the dope and who's hiring the workers? We are. Over the next 18 months, the Bordering on Insecurity team peeled back layer after layer and found themselves in the middle of one of the most divisive issues in America. Examining the topic of immigrants and crime was a natural starting point for the project. Jay and the team started by interviewing family members of people caught in the crossfire of crimes committed by undocumented immigrants. From Because I think the crime victims, they have a story to tell. And, you know, they, they ended up being a pretty big influence on Donald Trump and on his campaign and on his rhetoric. Across the country, there's been a lot of fear and confusion about undocumented immigrants and their impact on society. Blame is, and remains, a key part of the immigration debate as well. Depending on where you are on the partisan spectrum, you know, a lot of Republicans tend to want to blame sanctuary cities, but there's also a lot of blame to go in the federal government. And there's, under both George W. Bush and Barack Obama, there's plenty of blame to go around on all sides for basically having a porous border that allows people to kind of use it like a revolving door. To move from blame to fact, the team turned to the only thing that could move the narrative beyond emotion and anecdotes, data. So they went to Immigration Customs Enforcement, or ICE, in the Department of Homeland Security, looking for information on undocumented criminal aliens, to use the federal government's term. In the high-profile case of Kate Steinle, ICE released information about her alleged killer, the Mexican immigrant who had been deported five times. News organizations and the public wanted answers. How could this happen? To try and answer this question, the Tribune looked to the criminal justice system in Texas. We want to know who on Texas death row was undocumented at the time they committed their crimes. And we got enough information to find that there were 12 undocumented death row inmates who were, appeared to be undocumented at the time. The reporters kept digging. They asked ICE for information on the 12 inmates' immigration history, including deportation records and apprehension documents. We got shut down. They gave us three. They gave us three, and they said, you know, we're not going to give you the other nine. And we were like, why? And they were like, well, we don't, we, we don't have to. And so you can imagine on somebody on death row, we know their birth date. We know all these issues about what, what their crimes were and all that. But we can't find out their immigration history. And, and I, I think that you could make the case that that's one of the problems that leads to all of this. this you know, we have a lot of outrage. But if you can't get the information, it's hard to know whether or not the government did its job or maybe somebody slipped through the cracks or whatever. Jay said ICE's reasoning for withholding some of this information was based around the 1974 U.S. Privacy Act, which offers guidelines for how information about individuals can be collected, used, and released by federal agencies. It wasn't written with undocumented immigrants in mind. 
But over the years, government decided to create regulations that covered these individuals, including people with criminal records. So they decided to dig into the issue of sanctuary cities next. But the real rub is that you know, a lot of people, you know, get deported and they don't stay deported. So we sort of, you know, got into that phenomenon. We published uh, a list of so-called sanctuary jurisdictions, and this is a list that ICE puts together. And it, it's been cited over and over because they really didn't want to give it to us. Jay said the director of ICE was not happy when she learned that the records custodians released the sanctuary city information to the Tribune. As much as FOIA proved to be fruitful for getting the list of sanctuary cities, it also created ongoing challenges, something Jay said other reporters should keep in mind when pursuing these stories. I still have, have FOIs out that the project's done. I'll, I'll probably be getting FOIs over the next couple of years that I appealed and all of that. I mean, so like if you have an idea for uh, an FOI, file it right this second. Do not wait. But for all of the surprises that came with dealing with government officials and administrators, nothing came close to what the team unveiled next. If you've ever crossed the border, you've encountered a customs agent. And that's where the Tribune series headed next to the officials tasked with keeping our borders secure. It's incredible what, you know, people waving, you know, customs agents waving people through and all of this, and, and just one story after another, dozens and dozens of, of cases in which Border Patrol agents who are sworn to uphold the law and, and protect our border doing the unthinkable, which is to work with the cartels. Enter the case of Joel Luna. Howell is a decorated Iraq war vet who became a Border Patrol agent in 2009. In 2013, his two brothers, Eduardo and Fernando, moved in with him. Everything was going well for Howell until 2015. It all started with this body that was discovered. Tourists on spring break discovered a headless, naked body in the waters off of South Padre Island in southeast Texas. And it was traced back to the, this tire shop the body was in one county over in Edinburgh, Texas. All, all of this went down in deep south Texas. And at the, at the tire shop, they find the brother, uh, Eduardo Luna, and another brother, Fernando Luna. So they have these Luna brothers. They arrest them. And when they arrest the older brother, it's while he's coming back from Mexico and driving the car, driving this murder suspect back from Mexico is the third brother, a border patrol agent. Then they start investigating him. He gets arrested. So you have three, the, all three Luna brothers get arrested, including the Border Patrol agent brother who was arrested last. After all three brothers are arrested, the authorities start unraveling a web of criminal activity that includes Howell, the Border Patrol agent. At his mother-in-law's house, police later find a safe filled with suspicious materials such as a kilo and a half of cocaine and $90,000 along with Howell's commemorative Border Patrol badge and a pistol from the Gulf Cartel. They even said Gulf Cartel on it. It was this ornate gold-plated pistol with the St. Judas on it. I mean, it was this really incredible gun. Um, and it, was, it, it had the name El Pajaro on it, which is the bird, and that was the brother's nickname in the cartel. 
The Luna case had blown up out of nowhere while the Tribune team was hard at work reporting other parts of the series. But a rogue Border Patrol agent and cocaine and guns from drug cartels made for a mix that couldn't be ignored. So the team diverted course to the Luna case, and not just by picking up the phone. We had a bunch of addresses, and, instead, and we had phone numbers too, but instead of calling the phone numbers, we didn't call the phone numbers first. Because you can always call later. You can call the phone later. But you can really only go, you know, if you're, if you're there and you go by and you see somebody at home, and you get them, I mean, like we did that with some of Hoel's family members, like his aunt. And it, it, it wasn't a huge piece of the story, but it was a very valuable piece of the story that no one else had. Hoel Luna was acquitted on the murder charge, but found guilty of engaging in organized crime. He's likely to spend 20 years in prison. His younger brother, who was an alleged hitman for the Gulf Cartel, received life without parole. His older brother struck a plea bargain and got 10 years probation. Paying attention to what was developing in the moment became a key part of the project. If the team had been too weighed down by the reporting that they had planned, they would have missed this case. We're like, we gotta do this, right? This guy is safe, you know, the gun, the money, all of this. So, so it ended up, you know, being a really interesting story that although we were doing investigative pieces was actually happening while we were doing this. I mean, it's like you can't make this up. No, you really can't. And I mean, I, I really, uh, honestly, like, this is not, like, isolated. I mean, they're, and it's, and it's, and it's counter-narrative. That's what's so interesting about it. Really, the lesson that I feel like we learned here and that I think is very instructive is that this didn't, a wall wouldn't stop this kind of stuff. I mean, these are people that, they, they, were, they were smuggling the dope and the money over the bridge. It was not coming across the river. That river would be the Rio Grande. It's coming across the bridge. And a lot of these cases that you see in these narratives that we have on our website right now of Border Patrol corruption cases, one after another, you see people using their badge and access to help drug trafficking, to help people smuggling. And you can build all the walls in the world. They're going through the door. Jay explained to his editors early on that this project would require a few trips south of the border. You know, and and I said from the beginning, you're going to have to let me go to Mexico and maybe even Central America. And they were like, "Okay, fine. (laughs) Great. I mean, I couldn't believe it, you know, and. So that's what we did. I mean, we went to the border countless times. We, we went to El Salvador for a week. We went to southern Mexico for a week. And, it, you know, basically Central America easing into southern Mexico is a huge area where, you know, people move basically people in product from, from Central America into Mexico and then, of course, up to the border. When we think about immigration, The border in Mexico are probably the first places that come to mind. El Salvador is a new addition to the narrative. It's now known as one of the deadliest and most crime-ridden countries in the world. Its citizens are leaving in droves, moving north through Guatemala and Mexico into the U.S. So, traveling to the tiny country was a must for the team. Their work in El Salvador culminated in the mini-documentary To Die or To Leave. In El Salvador, the team headed to the capital city of San Salvador to witness firsthand the turmoil that shakes the country. 
At one point, the team was interviewing the head of El Salvador's National Civil Police when... He got a call on his bat phone, uh, you know, his personal phone, and he took the call. He said, hold on a second. He took the call, and he said there's been an ambush of his law enforcement people. The reporters had seconds to decide whether they were going to follow him or not. So we rushed to the scene and it took us about an hour, but I ended up get finding the prosecutor who was, because there, down there, the AG's office basically controls the crime scenes. And it was like, you know, you get to the crime scene and there's like tape, and it was in this little village about 30 minutes outside the San Salvador, the capital. And when we got there, it was like you'd see a crime scene kind of in the U.S. I mean, you know, you're in Latin America, so it's the different, the setting is different. But, you know, there's crime scene tape, there's ambulance, cops everywhere. There, they're all wearing, like, ski masks because they don't want to be identified to potential criminals, basically. They were at ground zero of the terror that's driving thousands out of the country. And, you know, they're walking a perpetrator out, and the mother's crying, and so it was really a tense moment. And they're just working the phones, and then the, the finally the, the guy in charge of the crime scene comes and says, I can take two of you, let's go now. And we went up, and we walked up and with the camera. I was rolling the camera the entire time. The scene was grim. Blood, bodies, shell casings. I didn't think I was nervous at the time, and then I went back and looked at the video, and I could tell I was, like, kind of moving around too much. After their trip to El Salvador, the team headed back to the U.S.-Mexico border, this time to visit a ranch on the banks of the Rio Grande. We we had done a ride-along with the Border Patrol in Star County, sort of a rural area in the Rio Grande Valley in deep south Texas, and... The problem was is you're in the bubble when you're in, the, when you're in a ride-along. We're like, let's go back and get outside the bubble. So they popped the bubble and had a chat with a rancher living right off of the Rio Grande River. And boy, let me tell you, when you don't have the Border Patrol there, you realize that it's, you feel vulnerable. You know, it's like, gee, I felt so safe before when I had all these trucks and guns and helicopters overhead and boats in the water and all that. And, it, you know, you feel a lot you know, less protected. And we're out interviewing this rancher who has, who can trace his family back, a presence on on a ranch right on the banks of the Rio Grande to the 1700s from an old Spanish land grant. His name was Ruperto Escobar. And we were interviewing Ruperto, and the light was beautiful on the back of his truck, and you could see the river right behind him. So we're interviewing, you know, the frame is Ruperto with his cowboy hat, talking to us about life on the ranch and what it's like to be in this sort of smuggling corridor. As if they were waiting in the wings, the smugglers actually made an appearance. And while we're talking to him, a raft full of immigrants crosses onto his property. And he sees like, he says in Spanish, mira, look, you know, and we turn around. So we turn the cameras off and I'm like, let's go get it. This was their chance to talk to the smugglers. And we cut the interview short, and we walked around the woods to try and find them. And we did actually come face-to-face with probably a dozen or two uh, migrants who had just come across. And they were accompanied by two young coyotes or smugglers who were insistent that we didn't film them. That's Todd Wiseman. 
He's a multimedia reporter for the Tribune who was working as a videographer on this assignment. So I've got my cell phone camera and Todd has a real camera and we go in there and we were nervous as hell, you know, but we got some really good stuff and we ended up having a confrontation with the smugglers and they they were like, don't take photos of us. The smugglers were telling us to stop uh, taking video. Uh, the migrants just were, were kind of booking it and they were, a lot of them were covering their faces and just trying to kind of get through. You're, I came there to take video and to do my job, and uh, we I couldn't tell if we were being a little reckless or uh, unsafe or irresponsible to continue to tape this despite these people telling us not to. Concerns for our own safety and for the safety of the man whose land we were on. Uh, so I ended up deferring after we shot some video and they told us to stop. I did stop the camera at their request. Roberto had to step in. I mean, he said, they're just reporters, they're not police. And um, they were like, oh, good. And, and then he, they basically asked us where we were from and what we were doing. And then they said to us that they weren't drug smugglers, that they were only smuggling workers, that they were all Mexican workers, and that there's no drugs involved, and it's a completely different thing. So, But it was a tense moment out there, right? You got the river right there, you're in the woods. And a, there's a bunch of, you know, immigrants that are, you know, running. I mean, they're basically running through the, through the woods. They're just trying to get away. They're trying to go find a job. But these smugglers, you know, you're there and they're, they're telling you what to do, even though I'm with the landowner who can trace his land back to 1750 or something, you know. In that moment, what it says on the property records in the, you know, Star County Courthouse doesn't mean anything. Those guys were in control, and we, every one of us, knew that. And it was pretty scary, but I mean, it was it was also pretty cool as a reporter to get to do that. That was that was probably the, the strangest encounter that we had, especially after seeing the specter of crossing all over the city, yet it still being this something that we hadn't come face to face with. So when we actually did, it it was um it was pretty bizarre. I guess for people who live there, it's something you see often, but it was it really did put a a face to the whole phenomenon. And I think that was the intention of the, of the project, to really get down in there. I wish I had kept the camera on him a little bit longer and I had been a little less nervous. We got, like I said, the stuff, I'm, I'm proud of it. It's good. It could have been better. And also, I wish I had, I mean, like, I know this is going to sound stupid, but I thought to myself after, you know, they weren't armed. So what were they going to do to us if we kept filming them. By the end of the project, the package included almost 100 print and multimedia pieces spanning the four core areas decided on at the project's inception. And while that doesn't sound like a lot, there's still a ton the team didn't cover. Getting fixated on the little details or trying to cover too much would have sabotaged the whole effort. Don't try to cover this entire topic from every angle because you'll never... You'll never get your arms around it. It's too big because you're dealing, particularly when you're dealing with, with immigration and smuggling and all that. I mean, just think it's everything is uh, multiplied by the number of countries involved, all of which have their own customs and traditions and, you know, language uh, varieties. And so, you know, pick your shots and move on and like narrow down the real estate you want to focus on and do that. That was what we tried. You know, we, I, mean, I realized once I, once I got into this, I was like, oh, my God, because it was difficult 
to worry about part two and part three when I was still reporting part one, but you had to start planting some seeds in that area. So you have to give yourself some time and and really lean into one or two things and, and just flood the zone with FOIs and try to get to the bottom of it that way. But if you try to tackle it all at once, it's, it can be very overwhelming. It's also worth remembering the weight of the subject you're covering, especially if it deals with issues that can mean freedom or imprisonment, life or death for the people involved. You know, immigration it deals with people, and there's a lot of emotions on that. It's incredible how how much attention this this issue has has gotten, um, and this, there's a, there's a ton of rhetoric, and so just wading through that. I mean, for example, the whole issue of immigrants and crime. I mean, just trying to that that was something that you know it, it's like you keep digging and digging and digging, and you basically have. A lot of it is very partisan. So if you, you know, it's it's hard it's it's hard to get to objective data because there's so much passion on this topic that the left and the right can't. They just talk past each other, and and so you have to really, really absorb. I, I guess the the learning curve, the learning curve, and the amount of reading that I had to do was like way, way higher. I thought I knew this issue, and I really didn't. It's easy to characterize the immigration situation with well-worn stereotypes. The Tribune sought to combat that with breadth and detail. One of the unfortunate aspects of the era that we're in, and it's, it's partly Trump's fault, but it's not only his fault, is the death of nuance. You know, I mean, we don't, and, and it's so important. It's so important, like particularly the criminal alien issue is a perfect example of this. I don't think anybody wants people to use the border like a revolving door and 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 you just be able to you know it, it's offensive if people get deported over and over and over and come back and commit some crime and that's something that we need to do something about like you know everybody can agree that that's not a good outcome you know but on the other hand is it like is it happening all the time no it's not and so to, to have some measure there and to be able to measure that and give good data, which I think we did, at least on the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, what we, what we got on that. But, but those kinds of things, to come up with objective facts, to talk about what's really happening, and to be a reasonable, factual, objective voice on this is more important than ever. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play to stay up to date with all of the latest episodes. And head over to irie.org slash podcast to browse our archives. The IRE Radio Podcast is recorded in the studios of KBIA at the University of Missouri. Kara Tabor reported this episode. Sarah Hutchins is our editor. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Blake Nelson. Podcast. Podcast.